Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez, and I'm thrilled to present our next guest, Dr. Chatterjee and Dr. Rollins, two leading experts in maternal fetal interventions. Dr. Chatterjee is the Director of Fetal Anesthesia for the Colorado Fetal Care Center at the University of Colorado. Dr. Rollins is a Professor of Anesthesiology at Mayo Clinic, Minnesota. They are here today to discuss their article, Anesthesia for Maternal Fetal Interventions, a consensus statement from the American Society of Anesthesiologists, Committees on Obstetric and Pediatric Anesthesiology, and their North American Fetal Therapy Network. Dr. Chatterjee and Dr. Rawlings, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us, and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate the invitation. It's great to have this opportunity. So this is a, this article was a consensus statement from the ASA Committees on Obstetric and Pediatric Anesthesia and the Board of Directors of the North American Fetal Therapy Network. To get started, can you tell us about the different cat categories of maternal fetal interventions? Absolutely. So the three main categories of maternal fetal interventions are minimally invasive interventions, mid-gestation fetal surgeries, and exit procedures. So minimally invasive fetal interventions are the most common, and they include ultrasound-guided procedures and fetoscopic interventions. On the other hand, mid-gestation fetal surgeries, as the name suggests, are performed mid-gestation to repair congenital defects, such as fetal myelomeningocele and sacrococcygeal teratomas. Many of these mid-gestation surgeries involve an open hysterotomy, but more recently, minimally invasive approaches are being used. On the other hand, exit procedures are performed closer to term gestation to secure the fetal airway or perform other life-saving fetal intervention while still on placental support. And this allows successful transition to extrauterine life in a much more controlled fashion while the fetus benefits from continued placental circulation. That is great information to have. Thank you for sharing that with us. And Gathering from that uh, article, there's a lot of counseling and fetal testing, including genetic testing, imaging, and fetal cardiac testing to make sure that the mom is a good candidate for this kind of surgery. So what should be discussed during the preoperative evaluation? That's a great question. At, at most institutions that perform fetal interventions, a multidisciplinary team meeting is organized with the patient and their family to discuss not only the risks and benefits and alternatives, but also the anticipated outcomes after these fetal interventions. A comprehensive preoperative evaluation is really important, and that should include a detailed history and a physical exam. In addition, imaging studies such as ultrasonography, fetal echocardiography, and or fetal MRI are often performed uh, for additional details. Occasionally, amniocentesis is also performed for fetal karyotyping. I want to emphasize that maternal safety is paramount and therefore a detailed informed consent process is critical before embarking on any kind of fetal intervention. So at your institution, when does the anesthesia preoperative evaluation take place? Is that there's a pre-op clinic or the day before the surgery? When, when does this happen? So at our center, a, a member of our anesthesia team participates in this multidisciplinary team meeting 
when the procedure is being planned. And the in addition, the anesthesiologist caring for the patient also evaluates the patient on the day of surgery and discusses the anesthetic plan with the patient. Ideally, all members of this perioperative team have had an opportunity to meet with the patient to discuss their part of the care at least a few days in advance. I'm guessing that one question that frequently arises is later childhood development issues. Because these is a common questions that even our patients that are coming for regular non-obstetric surgeries ask. What do we know and how do you counsel your patients if these questions arises? Yeah, um, along those lines, I think the question that most frequently arises, you know, uh, thinking more about these open mid-gestational procedures from the parents is they want to know, are there going to be any long-term effects from the general anesthetic? Unfortunately, we don't have a significant amount of data in this area. And, you know, uh, what we do know is that for the fetal pathology being treated, the fetus is either going to, we're going to either have exposure of the fetus at mid-gestation during the fetal procedure, or the neonate will be exposed to anesthesia uh, in the postpartum period. So the question really isn't, you know, is it, what's the effect of the general anesthetic? The question is, do we know anything about the timing of the exposure? And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a tremendous amount of data. Um, where we do look to for this is probably the most amount of data we have is from the myelomeningocele trial called the MOMS trial. And what they did in this trial was they randomized patients who needed myelomeningocele repair of the fetus to either prenatal treatment or postnatal treatment. Um, they had extensive follow-up with neuropsychological testing and physical evaluations of the children. And now we're out to a point where these children are aged about six to 10 years old. What we saw from the trial was that uh, when the procedures were done in the mid-gestation period as opposed to the postnatal period, there were definitely lower rates of hindbrain herniation and uh, decreased need for shunting with this prenatal repair group. And um, in the children that did not require a shunt or have significant herniation, they've now been shown to have better performance in their adaptive behavior testing, intelligence testing, memory, reading skills, fine motor dexterity. So somewhat as expected, what we've seen is it's the disease severity and hydrocephalus status that to be appear to be much more significant in the neurocognitive outcomes than the, the timing of the exposure to the general anesthetic, which I think most of us find reassuring because if there is something there with the timing, it's certainly far less than the disease process and the surgery itself. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. I think it's it's uh it's very important, particularly for patients that are coming for mid gestational surgery, to say, well, it's it's truly not whether the baby is gonna need surgery. It's uh you know it's about the timing when the surgery or uh, the exposure to general anesthesia happens. Um, so what are the main concerns when it comes to fetal circulation and physiology? Well. You know, I think as Dave mentioned, you know, our primary goal is obviously to, uh, first and foremost to keep the mother safe and stable. But 
obviously regarding the fetus, our focus is also on maintaining uteroplacental perfusion, adequate uterine relaxation, uh, appropriate fetal circulation, and then also being ready and prepared to respond to any uh, significant maternal hemorrhage or change in the fetal status. So, you know, thinking about each one of those somewhat individually, preserving the uteroplacental perfusion is really similar to the approach to used for cesarean delivery. So maintaining maternal blood pressure and heart rate, adequate uterine displacement, normal cardio, normal thermia. Um, but unlike a cesarean delivery, there's really this goal to maintain somewhat profound uterine relaxation to optimize fetal perfusion and prevent placental abruption during the procedure. So historically, this had been accomplished with high levels of volatile agent, such as isoflurane, sevoflurane, at levels of two to three MAC. But more recently, what we've done is we've used adjuvants to help out. So, uh, for example, if we're doing a mid-gestational procedure like a myelomeningocele that we've been talking about, we'll start an infusion of magnesium sulfate at most centers uh, prior to the surgery and run it throughout the surgery to help with the uterine relaxation. We also have been using uh, supplemental intravenous techniques of combining uh, propofol and remifentanil or even remifentanil alone, which has now been shown to decrease the amount of volatile anesthetic we need to maintain this uterine relaxation. Additionally, fetal monitoring is relatively procedure specific, but in addition to fetal heart rate monitoring during the procedure, it may include periodic fetal echocardiography, umbilical artery Doppler flows, and in exit procedures, we'll even place fetal pulse oximetry. Uh, we usually have matched blood for mom and fetus available in the room. And in cases where significant fetal blood loss is anticipated, such as sacrococcygeal tumor resections, we'll place a fetal IV at the start of the procedure. What about, what about uh, medications? Is there any medications that you would tend to avoid when inducing patients or during the surgery, particularly for these mid-gestation surgeries, like benzodiazepines or ketorolac? You know, assuming, uh, you know, we're using general anesthesia for, like you said, a mid-gestational surgery, there's no specific anesthetic approach, which has really been shown to be better than another. Um, there's no sort of class X anesthetic agents and so we know from cohort studies, you brought up benzodiazepines, that a single dose of midazolam is not going to have a significant detrimental effect. Dave and I were involved in a survey of fetal centers about two years ago because we were curious what other centers were doing. And even on um, more minimally invasive procedures like intrauterine transfusions, uh, more than half of centers do give single doses of benzodiazepines for maternal anxiety. It's, I think it's very similar to non-obstetric surgery during pregnancy. The most important thing, as we've already talked about, is maintaining appropriate maternal hemodynamics and fetal placental perfusion. And this is a far greater uh, benefit than any specific type of anesthetic technique. I guess since you mentioned it, there may be one agent we would avoid is NSAIDs in later gestational age just for concern about premature closure of the ductus arteriosus. Thank you for that. And it's reassuring to hear that benzodiazepines are 
not going to be uh, that much of a significant issue to the baby because as you mentioned, we are starting to give more of these medications for patients because of the anxiety around um, the, the surgery. So it's reassuring to hear that the evidence suggests that it's safe. Now, there is mounting evidence suggesting that Sugamadex is not related to preterm labor, which was the main concern given that this drug binds progesterone. What are your thoughts on Sugamadex? Well, I think just to sort of back up a, a little bit, I would first want to say in general, we rarely need to use maternal relaxation beyond the time of the initial intubation. So the majority of the time, even in these open fetal procedures, not depolarizing agents are rarely required. But to your point, um, let's say that we did need to provide some uh, relaxation for the uh, surgical approach. Um, my thought is that although I am, I understand what you're saying, that we have a little bit more evidence, until we really have good evidence, we tend to follow the current SOAP guidelines, which recommend avoiding Sugamidex during pregnancy. Progesterone is involved in a number of aspects of a healthy pregnancy, in addition to just the timing of the labor. And, you know, since we still have neostigmine, which has been used safely for many years and was the drug used throughout the MOMS trial, and historically on a lot of data we have for these mid-gestational procedures, if uh, non-depolarization was required, um, we typically would choose that. The other thing that's equally important to remember is that probably as you know, as important as the reversal administration is monitoring uh, the effects of the reversal, because as we've mentioned, magnesium is typically run in relatively high doses throughout these cases, and it does have a profound effect on the neuromuscular blockade. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think, yeah, as you mentioned, we probably should just keep waiting to see where, you know, more robust data suggesting that in fact, Sugamadex is safe. So one of the very interesting things about these maternal fetal surgeries is that you essentially have two patients you need to care for, right? You have the mom and you also have the baby that it's not only um, just going to be delivered, but the baby is getting surgery, particularly in those uh, mid-gestation surgeries. So you know, we definitely should be taking into account that the baby also needs some analgesia. And there are some interesting studies looking into electroencephalogram that suggest that thalamocortical connections to the somatosensory cortex that allow for the perception of pain are not well developed until 24 to 34 weeks gestation. How do we clinically translate this information? Well, I think the first thing is that it's important to realize we're not preventing fetal pain we're primarily preventing a fetal stress response. And so although, uh, you know, the, although the cortical connections which are necessary for the perception of pain are not really in place until, you know, early 30 weeks of gestation, the stress response is really just a spinal uh, reflex arc. And these noxious stimuli uh, are present during the first trimester. We have studies that were originally done in uh, early gestation when uh, 
vein sampling was done intrahepatically. So you could imagine sort of a 22 gauge needle going in through the abdomen of the mother into the uterus, through the abdomen of the fetus, and then into the intrahepatic veins. You have a relatively invasive procedures. And from these studies, we saw increases in fetal cortisol and beta endorphins with this needling uh, of the fetal abdomen. What we also saw was these increases in fetal cortisol and beta endorphins did not occur when the umbilical cord is sampling. And that's because the umbilical cord does not have pain receptors on it, nor does the placenta. The increase in these uh, levels occurred the longer the needle was left in place. And then also, most importantly, is this stress response that we saw from the spinal arc was blunted successfully with the use of fetal opioids, right? So, you know, the next question is, let's say you didn't blunt this fetal stress response, um, what are the downsides? And unfortunately, we don't really have that data because really from the onset of fetal surgery, uh, we had always given opioids to the fetus at the centers that did this most, uh, you know, earliest on. If you were to draw parallels to neonatal pain, you you know, you can think back, and it really wasn't until the late 1980s that we even considered neonates to have pain. And we do know that there were potential long-term effects of hyperalgesia and adverse effects of neurodevelopment with untreated neonatal pain of neonates undergoing surgery early on in life. Um, so we just don't know, but I think it's best to just treat that fetal stress response, even though we don't know the long-term outcome implications. I think the, the other point I want to make, because I, I hear it discussed at centers that are sort of newly starting this, is the logic can go forward that, well, we have the mom under general anesthesia. We know that the anesthesia is being transmitted across the placenta to the fetus. So the fetus is getting a general anesthetic from the volatile agent or the propofol. So why do we need to give them an opioid? And I think the, the key that's missing there is both volatile agents and propofol are not analgesics and they will not blunt the stress response. Um, you can imagine doing adult case where you give no opioid, you'll have an incredible roller coaster ride with various parts of the surgery if you have no analgesics on board. And that would be what we would be worried about with the fetal stress response. Yeah, that's a great point. And that, that's definitely something that I've heard as well. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it's important to decrease the stress response. And certainly the ba the fetus is receiving some of this medication, but there is nothing better than giving the, the fetus what they need directly rather than rely on the mother to transfer some of that medication, but not all of it. So I, I agree that the, the best way to do this is to give the medication to the to the fetus. So some procedures uh, do not require the use of direct fetal analgesia. We mainly rely on what we just mentioned. We get away because some of the medication do cross the, the placenta. So when do when is it okay to rely on these mom will transfer probably enough to keep the response, the stress response uh, low on the baby? I think I would think about it more based on what, you know, which procedure is occurring. So sort of back to the idea that we know that the 
Uh, umbilical cord is insensate and the placenta is insensate. Any procedures that are only involving those items, so blood sampling of the cord, intrauterine transfusion through the cord vessels, twin-twin transfusion using laser ablation along the surface of the placenta, none of those are going to have an effect uh, on the fetal stress response because there's no receptors there. However, any sort of minimally invasive approach or maximally invasive open procedures where uh, there's a noxious stimuli to the fetus, whether it's needling, placement of a shunt, uh, direct surgical incision, all of those, uh, regardless of the anesthetic you're giving to the mom, would create a stress response in the fetus. So, you know, one way that centers have thought about blunting this is use of remifentanil in the mom, where, you know, that is an opioid analgesic, and that is going to readily cross to the fetus. Um, you know, they have used it, but I haven't seen the studies on how well the transplacental, uh, you know, use of remifentanil has blunted the fetal stress response. And the other thing that's really an area of research that we need is especially in these open procedures, after the procedure is done, um, you know, what sort of analgesic measures does the fetus need? Is there anything that would actually benefit the outcome of the fetus? Meaning if you were to just use remifentanil, um, that's going to go away quite rapidly after the infusion is shut off maternally. And although most centers use intramuscular injections of fentanyl on the fetus, it has always been a question, should we be using morphine, hydromorphone to provide longer-term analgesia into the post-op period for the fetus? And we just don't know the answers to those questions. Yeah, there's still a lot of uh, unknowns and, you know, a lot of research to be done there. Yeah, so that that is good to know. Uh, so earlier we discussed three main categories of maternal fetal interventions. I would like to know more about the anesthetic management of them. What are the anesthetic challenges related to minimally invasive maternal fetal interventions? I'll be happy to answer this question. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, minimally invasive fetal interventions are either ultrasound guided or fetoscopic interventions where a fetoscope is inserted percutaneously into the uterine cavity. In fact, the minimally invasive interventions are the most common type of interventions we perform. Some examples include um, selective fetoscopic laser photocoagulation for twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome, or TTTS. Um, another common procedure is ultrasound-guided drainage of fetal thoracic cysts or ablation of pusheal valves. And as Mark mentioned earlier, percutaneous umbilical blood sampling. So these are the most common minimally invasive fetal interventions, and they are typically performed with local anesthetic infiltration with or without minimal or moderate sedation to the mother. Some centers also perform these procedures under a neuraxial blockade, such as a single-shot spinal or an epidural. Um, rarely, general anesthesia may be necessary, depending on the surgical approach or patient comorbidities. But again, most commonly, these are done with a local anesthetic infiltration with some sedation or a neuraxial block. The main anesthetic considerations are, in addition to using standard monitors, is maintaining stable metal hemodynamics. And unlike the mid-gestation surgeries, uterine relaxation is typically not needed intraoperatively. 
And most of the fetal monitoring that's done for these procedures is uh, fetal heart rate monitoring using a Doppler um, at the beginning and, and at the end of the procedure. So a lot less fetal monitoring compared to a mid-gestation or an exit procedure. So uh, as one will imagine, uh, mid-gestation maternal fetal surgery, it's, it's, it's a bit more complicated. Um, and before we start discussing the anesthetic management, I have a question. What are the main benefits of performing open maternal fetal surgery? That's a great question. So the most common indication for these mid-gestation fetal surgeries is repairing a fetal myelomeningocele defect. As you know, myelomeningocele is the most common open neural tube defect, which is characterized by a cleft in the vertebral column with a corresponding epithelial or skin defect resulting in exposed spinal cord and meninges, and myelomeningocele are most commonly seen in the lower lumbosacral region. Almost all patients with this myelomeningocele defects also have a Chiari 2 malformation, which is characterized by a small posterior fossa and hindbrain herniation, which results in obstructive hydrocephalus, and often these, these children require a VP shunt and then multiple VP shunt revisions throughout their life. So the Management of myelomeningocele study or the MOMS trial looked at prenatal repair versus standard postnatal repair, and they found that the advantage of prenatal repair was it resulted in reversal of hindbrain herniation and a significant reduction, almost a 50% reduction in the need for a VP shunt placement at one year of age, and almost a double the ability to walk uh, without orthotics. So there was a and an improvement in the functional level of the of the you know myelomeningocele defect with prenatal repair. That is quite significant benefits for the baby. So please walk us through the steps for doing, for example, um, myelomeningocele repair. Sure. So these fetal myelomeningocele repairs are typically performed until maternal general anesthesia. Preoperatively, we place a high lumbar epidural for, and we use that just for postoperative analgesia. So as far as the anesthetic goes, after an adequate pre-oxygenation, a, a rapid sequence induction is performed to facilitate endotracheal intubation. And in addition to standard ASA monitors, we will insert an arterial line for close um, uh, hemodynamic monitoring. We also insert a second IV for vascular access, and the nurses will place a, a Foley catheter to monitor urine output. So standard ASA monitors, um, arterial line, uh, second IV and uh, epidural before we, you know, start preoperatively. So for this surgery, as you mentioned, patients will need general anesthesia. Is there a preferable maintenance of anesthesia? So yeah, as I mentioned, general anesthesia is, you know, used for most of these cases. Um, um, and GA is usually maintained either with um, IV anesthetic agents such as propofol with remifentanil infusions or a combination of volatile and IV anesthetic agents. In this particular surgery, the it's it's very imperative to maintain great uteroplacental blood flow uh, control. And at times, it seems like the goal of relaxing the uterus could interfere with our ability to maintain the hemodynamics. Um, and as you as mentioned in your consensus statement, vasopressors are commonly required. Do you have a preference for which presser to to be used? 
I think, you know, as you've stated, really maintaining maternal hemodynamics is in criti- is critical because of the uteroplacental blood flow. As far as what pressors are used, you know, at this point in time, we probably have the most evidence with phenylephrine as the vasopressor of choice within the area of cesarean delivery. And so that sort of migrated over to uh, anesthesia for fetal surgery. I would say the vast majority of centers are using phenylephrine, uh, preferentially with occasional boluses of ephedrine as needed uh, to keep, you know, tight control of the blood pressure and maternal heart rate. There's more and more evidence of norepinephrine uh, being a good agent in the obstetric literature around cesarean delivery. And so I know a few centers have moved over to uh, norepinephrine, which does help maintain maternal heart rate and cardiac output. So those would probably, you know, phenylephrine, second choice norepi, uh, with occasional boluses of ephedrine um, would be uh, top choices. So as mentioned before, um, providing profound uterine relaxation is one of the main goals for these type of surgeries, right? What are your institutional preferred drugs for achieving this goal? So you are absolutely correct. So maintaining a completely relaxed uterus is one of the central tenets of these mid-gestation fetal surgeries and even exit procedures. At our center, we use sevoflurane and a combination of propofol and remifentanil infusions for maintaining this uterine relaxation. And, and as Mark mentioned earlier, uh, we also administer a magnesium sulfate load um, after induction of general anesthesia and run an infusion intraoperatively and actually continue that postoperatively for the first 24 hours. So for uterine relaxation, the mother gets so general anesthesia with like sevoflurane, propofol and remifentanil infusions, the magnesium sulfate bolus and infusion. In addition to all of this, um, our patients also get a dose of indomethacin suppository preoperatively, um, you know, a single dose is usually given to help with uterine relaxation. We mentioned, we did mention that indomethacin, which is that NSAID, uh, it's used for some of these uh, mid-gestation surgeries, right? Aren't we concerned about the um, fetal doctoral constriction when we use this drug? Yes, you're absolutely right. So indomethacin can cause fetal ductal constriction, and therefore, multiple doses are typically avoided. Um, I mentioned that our patients get a single dose, a suppository preoperatively, and and then um, and then they do not get any other doses. If additional doses of endomethacin are necessary, I think it's important to perform fetal echocardiography so we can monitor ductal constriction. But as I mentioned earlier, just a single dose is used preoperatively in the suppository fashion. Thank you for sharing uh, your experience. One aspect that I find fascinating for trainees, and and we've mentioned a little bit about this before, is how profound the combination of magnesium and neuromuscular blockers can be. And uh, again, we'll go back to that question. How do you reverse patients for extubation at your institution? Because we know that some of the drugs cross, some of the drugs don't cross the the placenta. So what is the mixture of uh, for reversal that uh, you are using at your institution? So again, um, you know, as we talked about before, we 
typically do avoid Sugamidex at this point in time. Again, that may change in the future, but for now, we rely more on neostigmine for the reversal. Sort of the point you're bringing up, uh, you know, which we teach is that neostigmine much more readily crosses the placenta than glycopyrrolate. So is this fear that if you use the standard uh, neostigmine and glycopyrrolate combination, previously used in adults before Sugamidex that you would worry about profound fetal bradycardia because of neostigmine crossing, but glycopyrrolate not. Um, in the literature, there is one case report of fetal bradycardia with this combination. So some centers do use a combination of neostigmine and atropine. Um, however, I would say, you know, at my institution and many others, we still use the neostigmine glycopyrrolate. We have the luxury of monitoring fetal heart rate after the administration. And to my knowledge, with the exception of this one case report, it has just really never been a problem. And so we typically, uh, at least in my experience, use neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. Uh, I want to let Dr. Chatterjee weigh in on that, what he does at Colorado. Um, I agree with you, Mark. Uh, we still um, use neostigmine and glycopyrrolate for reversal of, of neuromuscular blockade. And as you mentioned earlier, um, we try to avoid redosing the neuromuscular blockade as much as possible because of the potenti potentiation of neuromuscular blockade you can get with the use of magnesium sulfate. The only thing I'll add is, uh, for exit procedures, uh, when we are reversing blockade, since the mother is not going to remain pregnant after the surgery, uh, we use Sugamidex in that scenario. But for gestation surgeries, we are still using neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. So lastly, uh, yet not less important, we have the exit procedure. This procedure has been done uh, successfully under neuroaxial anesthesia and general anesthesia. What is your institutional preference? You know, I'll give you my institutional preference, which is general anesthesia. Uh, Dr. Chatterjee and I were part of a uh, survey of fetal centers in North America that did uh, open procedures as well as minimally invasive and exit procedures. And in that survey, which was published a couple of years ago, 90% of the centers use general anesthesia for the exit procedures. Uh, part of my logic for doing it this way is it's just so reliable. The volatile anesthetic is great at maintaining profound uterine relaxation. I have done two mid-gestational fetal procedures uh, under epidural uh, where we use nitro, uh, nitroglycerin for the um, relaxation of the uterus. And the amount you need is profound. We were at rates of 200 mics a minute. Uh, we had to have pharmacy make special concentrations of it because otherwise we'd have a volume problem. So the amount you need is huge. Uh, it's amounts that people are not, you know, used to giving. And, you know, the volatiles work so well and that I think with your goals of maintaining this uteroplacental perfusion and profound relaxation, which is really the whole reason you're doing the exit procedure. So the fetus can remain on placental support while the airway is instrumented or where other, uh, another procedure is being done, that that's my rationale for doing it under general. Yeah, I would I would think that ha doing this kind of procedure on their uh, neuroaxial can be quite challenging. 
Now, what are the anesthetic challenges for this procedure, the exit procedure? You really do want to be prepared for blood loss uh, of the mother. Uh, you have this large uterine incision that's going to allow access to the fetus for airway instrumentation, partial delivery. You're going to be giving agents to keep the uterus uh, well relaxed and then following uh, clamping of the cord and birth, now you have to tighten the uterine tone back up. This is definitely a procedure where you want very uh, open and frequent communication between all members of the perioperative team, surgeons, anesthesiologists, nurses, uh, especially in neonatology too. One thing which you know we're not as much involved in, but once the airway is placed in the fetus, and then the fetus is uh, brought, say, to the NICU or to an isolate where there's going to be further work done on it, just keeping that tube in place, you have a brand new, newly de uh, delivered neonate. It's hard to secure the tube, uh, so keeping everybody on the same page, being ready for plans to change mid-procedure with good communication probably the biggest challenges for this. Yeah, it's, as you mentioned, there's a lot of, you know, teams that need to cooperate and there's needs, there needs to be a lot of uh, communication. Now, once the surgery is done, another very important thing, right, as anesthesiologists, we know that particularly for these cases, postoperative pain, pain management is it's extremely important. Important. I would like to address the exit procedures and the uh, mid-gestation surgeries. And after the procedure, the postoperative management and considerations are... Well, I think it depends a little bit on the center. Um, I will say, to give you an example of postoperative management, if we're talking about mid-gestational fetal surgical procedures, as Dr. Chatterjee mentioned, we typically do place a epidural that's used postoperatively for analgesia. There is a little bit of concern that if you don't have a good pain control, you might increase your risk of uh, labor uh, in the mother. Um, also watching for um, uterine atony, uh, bleeding, you know, unexpected issues with the fetus, changes in fetal heart rate, uh, so on like that. So I think monitoring of both the fetus periodically as well as uh, for premature labor are key uh, that, you know, we're not thinking so much about after cesarean uh, delivery. As far as the exit procedures go, uh, at uh, Mayo and at uh, UCSF and Utah, where I had been before when we did exit procedures, we did not uh, place an epidural for post-op uh, analgesia of the mother. I'm curious uh, if Dr. Chatterjee is doing that at Colorado. So our uh, post-operative analgesia uh, regimen is is using the epidural for the first 24 hours, and we'll bolus a um, a long-acting opioid such as preservative-free morphine before removing the catheter. Um, in addition, our surgeons also place a wound soaker catheter um, that's used along with the epidural, and that catheter is usually maintained for about three to four days postoperatively. And we strongly uh, believe in the multi-mold analgesia approach using acetaminophen and oral opioids if needed. Um, so that's our primary uh, analgesic strategy for 
these registration procedures and uh, exit procedures. And if I'm correct, I think from our survey that we did, you're in the majority, Dr. Chatterjee, where I think close to about 80% of institutions do run a post-operative epidural analgesia following exit procedures for at least the first 24 hours. That's correct. It has been a great uh, podcast. I really learned a lot today about this excellent topic of fetal uh, maternal fetal procedures. I think it's definitely one of those areas that are growing and there are more centers uh, learning about how to perform these procedures. And it, it is encouraging to see the, the growth. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and putting out there these articles with your experience. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, your time during this podcast. Absolutely. I just want to give in a quick plug for our newly formed um, Society for Maternal Fetal Anesthesia that Dr. Rollins and I uh, co-founded along with several other members. This is uh, uh, a newly formed society that includes both obstetric and pediatric anesthesiologists involved in the care of these patients undergoing complex maternal fetal interventions. As you mentioned, there are several centers around the country that are performing these procedures, and this is a growing collaborative. Um, we've already had two annual meetings so far. We're going to have a new website soon. But please reach out to us if you're interested in getting involved. Um, so keep an eye out for the Society for Maternal Fetal Anesthesia. Thank you. That is great to know. And sure, we'll, if you have the link, we'll share it with our audience. Will do. Thank you.